VoiceOver describes what's happening on your iPhone screen. VoiceOver on settings. So you can navigate it just by listening. Books, contacts, calendar, double tap to open. Breakfast with Anna from 10 to 11. And get on with your day. Accessibility. There's more to iPhone. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. Yo. Technology. What is it all about? If you could do more work in a single day than has ever been done before in the history of humanity, you can only imagine that the things that you would discover, the materials that would be possible, and the way that you would start changing how you build things would seep into every facet in the world. Hello and welcome to Danny in the Valley, your weekly podcast from behind the scenes and inside the minds of the top people in tech. I am your host, Danny Fortson, the West Coast correspondent for the Sunday Times. And yes, this is your second pod of the week because it's 4th of July. Hopefully you'll have some time to hang out, relax, watch the fireworks. I know you don't do that in the UK, but I must say when I lived there, I did miss 4th of July, the barbecues and all that Good stuff. But anyhow, hopefully you have some time to relax and maybe even listen to a podcast. And this one is a mind bender. The question is, have you heard of quantum computing? Now, chances are that you have, if you listen to this podcast, and chances are uh, pretty good also that you have no idea what it actually is. And if that is the case, this is the pod for you. So on the program, we have Andrew Fersman, who is the founder of OneCubit, which is a Canadian startup that's been working on this for the past eight years. One of their big backers is Royal Bank of Scotland, amongst many others. But before we dive into the pod, I just wanted to give you a, have a quick stab at explaining what quantum computing is why it's such a big deal, and why it may indeed change everything, as the people have been saying for years now. So, quantum computers are kind of the next big leap. They'll be able to lap the supercomputers of today in terms of the processing, the power, and what they'll be able to do in certain circumstances, which we'll hear about. But one superpower that they'll have, for example, is simulating real-world environments, which when you stop and think about it, what that really means is they'll be able to run, simulate an environment, and then run every experiment possible within that environment, in the computer, in an instant, and then come up with solutions. Be that a way to reverse climate change, a material that is harder than anything on Earth, a cure for COVID, an encryption system that is finally, truly 
uncrackable, which of course banks would love. The list goes on. But if you think about it that way, basically the world's biggest problems could be solved or certainly helped by quantum computing's ability to basically set up a world, run all these experiments, and figure out the kind of the best mousetrap for a given problem. And there's a whole lot of companies trying to crack it. And as you'll soon hear, a quantum computer, the actual hardware, it's not really clear what that is going to look like. It certainly doesn't look like a computer that you and I think about. But that is kind of indicative of where the technology is. It's kind of like flying cars. Everybody agrees that this is going to be a very big deal. But there's 10, 20, 30 different types of designs for a flying car. Nobody's figured out, okay, this is what it is. And this is what it's going to look like. And this is how it's going to get from point A to point B. It feels like we're a little bit similar here with quantum computing. All of that said, Andrew, obviously, he's right on the cold face of this. He can give you a great sense of where things are and why it's a big deal and why it's interesting. And I think you're really going to enjoy it. So with that, I give you Andrew Fersman, founder and CEO of One Qubit. Enjoy. No shade if you've never listened to the podcast, although if you haven't, your life is not complete. But if you have not listened to it, the intro, I take a little clip from Ollie G. And he says, what is technology? It's from way back in the day. Boutros Galaxy. Exactly. <laughs> so I'm going to start this conversation with a similar question of what is quantum computing? Because I feel like it's something that is, it's kind of in the background. It's something that a lot of people have been talking about. It's something that supposedly is going to change everything. But I'll just speak for myself. I don't quite understand what kind of what it is. The way that I like to imagine it is to say we have a whole bunch of baggage about what a computer is because of the fact that, you know, we're using five of them right now. And so when we say computer, we don't just sort of mean a device that's able to calculate we have like a very specific idea of what a computer is um, based on our experience with them, and they work a particular way. But you can imagine solving answers to problems in a whole bunch of different ways. I saw something recently. We were having a campside uh, fire chat last night, and we were talking about the fact that we had seen some interesting work where a slime mold growth had been used to attempt to optimize the creation of, uh, you know, routes within a, a subway system. And nobody would probably <laughs> think about slime mold as being a computer. And yet you can understand that if you have a particular type of question, and if you have a particular type of thing, like a slime mold, and you use that slime mold to answer that question, then in some sense, you've computed an answer. And so the way I like to think about quantum computers is to say, if we can cast ourselves back to that idea of just having questions that we desire answers to and realizing that there are interesting methods available that are very different from what we think about computing today, but that can compute that answer, then that's ultimately what computers do. And from that perspective, I think a quantum computer in its broadest sense would be a device that makes use of the quantum world in order to calculate the answers in some way to questions that are very challenging for the tools that we currently have. And if we start with that like really basic assumption of what a useful quantum computer would do, 
is something that's difficult to do presently, utilizing something that we understand about the quantum world, then that really opens up what we could mean when we say quantum computers to be a, a much broader class of things. And, and that's probably a good place to start. You've proven the kind of the base case that you can build these machines and they can do certain tasks. But now the question is, okay, who cares? What's it going to be useful for? How long before we see something that like out there in the wild where it's like, oh my goodness, this massive problem has been solved thanks to quantum computing or made dramatically easier? Yeah. So the way that I like to think about quantum computers as they exist right now is uh, another sort of useful analogy. But in some sense, like imagine, you know, you and I are experts at abacus mathematics. And then imagine that I come to you and I show you this prototype design that I've got of a calculator. And uh, it's everything that a calculator is, but it's only got one digit slot. And so I can add like two plus two and it says four, but I add, uh, you know, six plus six and it just says error. And you would say like, man, that's a cool toy, but like, check it out. I can add like 5,000 and 5,000 super quick right here and away it goes. But if you understand fundamentally what an abacus is, and if you understand what a calculator is, you have the ability to say, man, if we can put a few more digit slots on this calculator, no one's ever going to be able to keep up with it using an abacus. They're just sort of, the scalability is completely different. And that's kind of where we sit right now with quantum computers is one of the original things that people wanted quantum computers for um, were to actually simulate the quantum world using quantum information in quantum computers to simulate the quantum world, a.k.a. the world we really live in. Right. And so you're sort of thinking, OK, like we've got this very small embryonic capability to maybe simulate what happens if you bring two hydrogen atoms close together. And the fact of the matter is that kind of simulation is so easy that we can do it on traditional computers very well. And so in some sense, the quantum computer right now kind of looks like that one digit slot calculator. You're like, it does it in a different way. But you also are like, wow, if we can just build up a few more of these digit spaces, we're going to very quickly eclipse what's possible. So some of the first things that one qubit's working with is looking at how can we simulate the quantum world in a way that allows us to make impact on for example, if you go into a quantum chemistry laboratory, you're going to see people doing something that looks kind of like mixing beakers together or pouring a test tube into a flask. We don't do that in a lot of other areas of human endeavor. We mostly, instead of using a laboratory, would essentially have created a virtual laboratory inside a computer and let the computer do that work. So, you know, while there might be wind tunnels that are used, Usually, people will start by kind of having a virtual wind tunnel in a computer. If you're trying to do these quantum chemistry problems with a classical computer, the world's largest supercomputers are capable of doing the smallest, most trivial calculations. And to do even moderately interesting things, like an example that's used often is that sort of talking about characterizing a caffeine molecule, people anticipate that you'd need to create something like a classical computer on scale or on par of scale wise with like, you know, the universe or the galaxy or, you know, throw out your sort of very large, like sort of thing. It's just not practical, right? And so I think the idea is to say, 
if we want to accurately transition from utilizing the real world, say the, the universe itself, to do this computation in the sense that pouring one thing into another thing is, you know, you could think of as using the universe to do a computation. It's sort of giving you the answer of what happens. We know that there must be a more efficient way to say, ask the universe the question of what happens when I introduce caffeine to water. Because if I need, if you're saying I need a computer that's the size of the galaxy in order to run that, and yet I can just drop a molecule of caffeine into a molecule of water, it's fairly clear that we're doing something inefficiently. And if we can learn how the natural world is kind of doing that computation already, then we should be able to build a simulated environment where I can introduce water and caffeine together inside a laboratory, inside a computer, in order to extract, extract better answers. And then you could imagine that really transforming the world. Because if I show you a chemical formula and say, you know, this material, do you think it's going to be stretchy or is it going to be brittle? If I wanted to make it more stretchy, how could I change it? Right now, that's sort of a very trial and error process where you almost have to build this new material that you've never seen before, before you can understand its properties. But you could imagine if you're looking for a more rigid material, if you could just simulate the creation of 100 trillion materials overnight and just select whichever one is the most rigid in your analysis, that's like the work of all the chemists that have ever existed on Earth for all of their time, you know, kind of being focused on one problem. And done overnight. Yeah, exactly. So that's where I think there's real opportunities to kind of, you know, quote, change everything is even just looking at this one application, which is simulating the physical world at a very low level. If you could do more work in a single day than has ever been done before in the history of humanity, you can only imagine that the things that you would discover, the materials that would be possible and the way that you would start changing how you build things would seep into every facet in the world. And so, for example, that's why OneCubit produced a, a software suite called Chemist, spelled with a Q, of course. And the idea is let's actually try and build the best chemistry simulator that we possibly can and then empower it with these quantum devices as they become more robust quantum simulators. I feel like that I have a little bit of clarity now. So is the idea that a quantum computer can effectively create a world, create, say, a universe, whatever, and in that world run all of these experiments to figure out and to when you're looking for a certain answer. So if we're thinking, for example, about climate change, Obviously, we're trying to reduce carbon. We're trying to do all of these things to kind of solve this problem. But you could theoretically create the Earth in a quantum computer, run whatever experiment you need to do and be like, oh, well, if we did X or if we approached it in a certain way, this would be another way to approach this very big, complex problem that is proving very difficult to solve. There's the potential for that kind of impact, although I would say even more directly, as far as I know, there's no law of physics that prevents us from building a small box that sits on our desk that interacts with the atmosphere and extracts carbon in order to produce electricity. 
possible. But you could use... We just don't know how. A quantum system to help join those dots to make something like that. Exactly. Like, what is the thing that when it's con uh, exposed to carbon dioxide strips that carbon out of the air and produces electricity? How do you build that thing? There are so many possible things that we could build. As a species, I'm pretty sure that we've experienced basically 0% of what's possible to create based on the fact that we have these finite lives. There's almost an infinity of materials that could be produced. It's natural that we will have explored close to zero of them. And yet, all of the incredible challenges that we faced could be radically impacted by just a small number of very specifically tailored devices. And if we had the ability to more directly target those challenges and say, all I'm looking for are even just say a particular molecule that can speed up a process of currently, you know, sequestering carbon. You just say, all I'm looking for is there's a process that sequesters carbon right now. You can toss any material, you know, you can take lawn clippings and toss it in. You can try bubble gum, you know, and then you would say like, did that did throwing bubble gum into this process make it go faster or slower? For most things, it's probably going to impede the reaction. But for some percentage of the things you could possibly throw in there, it's going to make it go better. In a simulated environment, you have the luxury of being able to try throwing in a trillion different combinations and seeing which one's At better. the end of the day, we all might have a desktop carbon sequestration machine made possible by something like this, for example. Exactly, yeah. And so it's like you wouldn't say that that device is a quantum computer, but it was by doing some exploration of the universe in a quantum computer that allowed you to produce this fairly mundane you know, device, even though it had transformative uh, properties for the world. So that's the other question I had. Was So the ability to do that, that kind of power to create a world like that, again, going back to the com computer through which I'm speaking to you right now, it's silicon wafers and chips and circuits, etc. What does a quantum computer look like? In other words, the hardware, what allows it to make those, uh, for lack of a better term, the quantum leap in computing yeah. from where we are today to what that can do? What's interesting is if you think about your Mac that's in front of you right now, it's very different from the computers of like the 1960s. Yeah, the size and of yet, an office building or whatever for basics. Exactly. Yeah, I went to the University of Waterloo and we had a computer science building that was like a big cube and it only had rooms around the outside because like the middle, say, 10 square floors is where the computer went. So obviously, if you were confronted with that computer today, it wouldn't even look like a computer. And yet at its core, it does the exact same thing as your MacBook, which is to say, you know, it has circuits and it has the ability to have zero or ones and to be able to read them. And so in some sense, your MacBook and that device are in some sense equivalent. Um, what's happening right now is that a number of, in the same sense, equivalent types of quantum computers are being experimented with. Some people think that the best path forward is to say, we have already spent as a society trillions of dollars developing the lithography techniques and everything that's necessary to make these super advanced chips. So what we should do is start with that technology and make those chips quantum. So you already have the ability to do silicon stuff. Let's just make silicon quantum. 
Then there's other people who are coming at it from a very different perspective, and they're saying, look, photons are already perfectly quantum mechanical. Let's just find a way to compute with light, and that way we're starting with something that's already quantum and building up. So you'll hear people talking about superconducting quantum computers. That usually means just essentially taking something that looks like the chips inside your MacBook, dumping them inside an extremely cold environment, causing them to start to manifest quantum mechanical behavior, and trying to tame that using the electronics that we're already very familiar with. Then there's other people who are saying, no, we're going to start with very specific and sensitive photon generators, and we're going to make something that looks nothing like a computer that you've ever seen before because we're scaling up the ability to compute with photons, but we don't have the problem of trying to get it to be quantum mechanical. We just have the problem of trying to get it to compute. So when you ask what a quantum computer looks like, depending on what lab you go to, whether you go to an ion trap based thing or someone working with diamond nitrogen vacancies or someone working with photonics or someone working with superconducting chips, they look like either exactly the same as the chip inside your MacBook right now, but with some slightly different features or something crazy exotic. Like there's a company that I really like called IonQ. They're basically using very strong magnetic fields to trap ions sort of suspend them floating in air and then fire lasers at them in order to kind of address them with different kinds of information that looks very different than a computer <laughs> and yet it computes in the way that we sort of defined computing at the beginning of this conversation so it's basically using light yeah using light uh, i mean what we know is that the world is quantum mechanical at its core and so what we're really trying to do is to say I want to compute with that quantum information, which means I kind of, in some sense, need to be able to write and read quantum information out of some sort of system. So some systems are easy to manipulate, and some systems are easy to have be quantum, and no systems that we know about right now are easy to do both with. And so it's sort of pick your poison. Do you want something that's easier to control but harder to make quantum, or something that's easy to have be quantum but very hard to control? It's almost like people are trying to build vacuum tubes and integrated circuits and transistors at the same time. You know, the vacuum tube people would be saying this might not be as scalable, but it's way easier to realize. And I'd rather get something that works and build on that as we go forward. And then other people are saying, why would we build a technology that's not scalable? This is way harder to get going. But once we get it going, it's going to be easier to scale up. And so you have these sort of tortoise and the hare type decisions to make if you're trying to build a particular type of quantum computer. What I really like about One Qubit is that we're in a place where we're just cheerleaders for all those efforts. We're like, everybody try and build the best thing you can, because in the sense that those devices are all equivalent, any of those devices could become the engine that powers our virtual chemistry library. The train is now approaching. Junction at platform. iOS helps you control which apps you share your exact location with. There's more to iPhone. Do you foresee, because oftentimes people kind of wake up to a technology when there's, let's call it an oh shit moment, 
where maybe somebody has come up, maybe somebody right now, a state-sponsored bad actor has come up with a quantum device and they're using it to decrypt the best bank encryption in the world. So all of a sudden it's like, you know, Goldman Sachs or RBA, the Royal Bank of Scotland, one of your uh, investors, say, oh my God, our systems have just been completely taken apart and, you know, they've stolen $100 billion. Do you think something like that is possible or likely as people kind of race to try to kind of figure this out? Well, possible, yes. Likely, maybe not, because there are so many different groups that are trying to make this impact that I think there's a general understanding of how far away these things might be. But that being said, you never know what you don't know. And so there could be an organization that's significantly further ahead than everybody else. Um, If there is such an organization out there, my first recommendation to them would be that they should get in touch with me and let me use that computer. But my second recommendation would be that they never tell anyone that they have built this device, because as you can imagine, it's almost like when you think about in World War II, once the Enigma code was cracked by the Allies, the most important thing for them was not letting their adversaries know that they had the ability to read this. And so I think the the concern, for example, with the decryption uh, method is that you would probably, if you were a bad actor, do everything that you could to avoid people knowing that you had created this. And specifically, it's because, you know, if you think about, let's say this conversation right now, right, it's probably happening over an encrypted channel. I'm doing this, uh, you know, say over a Wi-Fi connection. You could be sitting here in my room you could see all the packets flying through the air and you could store them to a disk and you can't read them because they're encrypted, but they're encrypted with a method that we know is weak against future quantum computers. So right now, a very useful thing to be doing if you were a bad actor would be to sit around things that you wish you could know, where people were having conversations that you're very interested in knowing the contents of, where it doesn't necessarily even matter if you know the contents now versus in the future, you just want to know what was said. You would store all of that information in its current encrypted form. Then in the future, when these devices exist, you can go back and you can read all of that information and you never need to disclose to anybody that you have that capability. So I think that's probably one of the things that keeps defense establishment and uh, security and intelligence community people awake at night is that if they think they understand where this technology is, but actually one of their adversaries has this capability, it really changes what's possible to know. And that kind of asymmetrical access to technology, I think would be really worrisome for some people. But the reason I say that I think that that's unlikely is because despite the fact that Shor's algorithm, the method that powers this decryption capability was discovered in the 1990s, it's actually assumed to be one of the last applications that will be realizable given the technology that we actually have. So, for example, I think that we will have the box on your desk that takes carbon out of the air long before we have a quantum computer that is completely decrypting all of the NSA's secrets. But also, that's only what I think today with the information that's available and what I don't know about quantum computing could probably fill the universe. You've been at this for eight years. What did you do before this? Um, Looked for interesting things to do, I suppose. But 
I was actually really lucky. I had an opportunity to co-found a company called Satellogic with my co-founder's name is Emiliano. So Satellogic's about a large number of small satellites in low Earth orbit. But I think about that as being sort of a hands-on early mentoring experience. Um, I remember things like, you know, saying, well, I went to this online calculator and it shows us that our, you know, company at this stage is worth like $14. And having Emiliano turn and say, like, look, the company is worth whatever we agree to accept from an investor who is going to be bringing money to the table. Like, stop looking at this dumb objective measures. This is just a negotiation, you know, like the sorts of things that snap you out of the naive way of, of being that might be very challenging. And so I had a great opportunity, I think, to be exposed to a lot of people who helped me understand how to build these sorts of companies. And more importantly, to understand that the most important thing that I can bring to an organization is not doing the deep quantum information science, but essentially acting as a servant to all the people who are trying to do that work and saying, what do you need in order to improve your ability to do this work? And you just work on those things and I will work at trying to bring those resources to the table. Um, and I think that that's what I've sort of learned from my experiences up to now is that I need to kind of get out of the way of the real work that's being done based on my skill set and then to sort of act as that interface to acquire the resources that our team needs. You've been doing this for eight years. You've raised 40-something million. How difficult has that been? Because it feels like this is still, and I don't mean it pejoratively, but a little a bit of a science project that it still yep. feels so theoretical and so there's so much heavy lifting that needs to be done to kind of, you know, bring the revolution to the people. Was that difficult? I mean, how, what's the pitch? <laughs> I think the pitch is if we can do a good job at that first thing that I mentioned, which is finding an area where classical computers as currently designed are not up to the task that they're being asked to perform, then there's inherently an opportunity there. It's an opportunity for quantum computers, for sure, but it's an opportunity for any technology that can be brought to bear. So in some sense, instead of raising money just by selling shares and you know equity and the sorts of things that you traditionally do in Silicon Valley companies, what we're really trying to do is to fund this effort by developing viable businesses that take advantage of the current state of the art and then hoping to disrupt those businesses ourselves by bringing on more advanced technologies. And investors have been obviously on board with that. Yeah, I think the important thing has been to try and find investors who understand that this is a long-term journey and to sort of, you know, there's a lot of meetings that kind of go and say, we want to explore something over the super long term, the long term that is much longer than the duration of your fund. And they say, we are not interested in funding things that have a time horizon of longer than our fund. And we say, well, isn't it great that we got to know each other? But instead of me trying to convince you to do something that's not going to happen, um, you know, I'm glad we had this connection. We'll talk to you when the timing's better. That being said, there's a lot of people who are saying, I want to invest in what you're doing because I want to make sure that I understand exactly what's happening within the space. Say you're a materials company and you understand that despite the fact that you have a billion dollar laboratory investment in the future, two kids in a basement using Microsoft Azure might be able to do the same thing that just last year required you to have a billion dollar investment. That kind of disruption makes it so that your investment in quantum computing 
might be less about the return that you make from an individual company, even though that might be substantial. But if the risk is that your entire business would fail if other people were wielding this technology and you weren't, well, that's a real strong value uh, or a strong impetus for you to be able to get in early and maybe a million dollar investment in order to understand something that could jeopardize your multi-billion dollar business is a really great trade-off at this stage. And so at the early, early times when we were first getting into this, I think it was about finding people who wanted to go on this journey with us. Now it's more about commercial Like an insurance policy almost. Exactly. Yep. And that's how we kind of started off because we didn't know, frankly, it's like what I said, you know, at the beginning of this interview, there's so much that we don't know. Now that we've had abilities to kind of really dig into much more of these uh, applications, it's easier to be able to say, great, here's a real industry problem. Here's a solution. Here's how we make money. But it took a long time to get to the point where we understood which of those series actually intersected with quantum computers in the reasonably near future. And that is all the time we have. I want to thank you for taking the time to listen. I want to thank Andrew for sitting down and talking. And I hope you all have a fabulous weekend. I will endeavor to amid the COVID madness and the huge spike in cases that is happening all around us and trying to stay safe and keep everybody around me safe and sane. Anyhow, we'll be writing about this amongst many other things in this weekend's paper. So do check that out. Until next week. Stay safe, stay sane. Bye-bye. VoiceOver describes what's happening on your iPhone screen. VoiceOver on settings. So you can navigate it just by listening. Books, contacts, calendar, double tap to open. Breakfast with Anna from 10 to 11. And get on with your day. Accessibility. There's more to iPhone. Okay, I have two new obsessions that I need to share with you. Impress No Glue Press-On Mannies and Impress Press-On Falsies Lashes. Trust me, these are getting ready game changers. Both require no glue, so there is no damage to your natural nails and lashes, no mess, and no annoying dry times. Just one step and you're done. Boom. Instant glam. Visit impressbeauty.com slash presson and use code presson25 at checkout for 25% off impress manicure and press on falsies.